You're now listening to episode 55 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Tom Castell here today with Mauricio Raul, founder and CEO of Premier Law Group, a premier boutique securities firm. As a nationally recognized expert on private placements, Mauricio works with elite entrepreneurs who seek to increase and protect their wealth through syndications. Mauricio specializes in Reg D exempt offerings and educates investors from around the world on how to navigate the complex world of securities laws. Known for taking complex matters and making them simple to understand, Mauricio is sometimes jokingly referred to as one of the few lawyers who actually speaks English. In this episode, we get a lawyer's take on the Qualified Opportunity Zone program. We discuss the latest round of proposed regulations and more. So during our discussions, we talk about netting Section 1231 gains and whether or not there is or is not an election to make the 180-day investment period start at the date of sale rather than December 31st or whenever the end of your tax year is. And as of this recording, there is no such election unless your tax year ended before May 1st, 2019. This is something I did want to clarify as we do discuss it throughout the conversations but never actually provide a clarification. So with that being said, let's jump right into today's episode. Mauricio, thanks for coming on the show today. Can you give our listeners a little bit of information about your background and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, I'd love to. So I'm the founder and CEO of Premier Law Group. Uh, We are a syndication law firm. 100% of my practice involves helping real estate investors raise capital and primarily buy apartment complexes or other types of real estate which is why the Opportunity Zone thing came came into play because a lot of my clients are really interested in this Opportunity Zone because they feel like it's just a great opportunity for them to raise capital from investors who typically maybe are not interested or haven't been interested in the real estate world. But now with these new tax laws, they're kind of interested. And so it's an opportunity for my clients, my syndication clients, to access more sort of passive investors. But that's all we do is, is syndication work. Uh, all my clients are real estate investors. And I've been doing this now for, man, going on 20 years. Uh, started like everybody else did and, and went to a really good law firm. Did that for a while. Did litigation back in the day. So I represented all the Sort of the securities clients, the JP Morgans, the Prudentials, the Merrill Lynch's of the world. But I was doing the litigation piece. And so when I got involved, it was always when the lawsuit had already happened and the you know what hit the fan. But now I've transitioned out of that. And now, like I said, 100% of my practice is syndication law. And that's kind of how I finally got in here and talking about opportunity zones. Got it, got it. So just for our listeners, everybody's listening, we, me and Brennan did do an episode on qualified opportunity funds back uh, episode 28, where we just discussed uh, basically the general rules. And then we did an episode with John Cohen, um, episode 29. He bought a vacant building and used an opportunity fund. So if you're interested in that practical applications of that, uh, you can go check out that episode as well. But as a quick recap, would you be able to give our listeners like the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, regarding opportunity funds? So, yeah, that's a good way that I like to organize things in my in my mind. I always try and categorize new laws because the opportunity zone rules, as you know, guys, is, is super complex. And I just like to keep it simple. But please keep in mind, this is really a complex, not even legal, but also a tax uh, regulation of law. But to me, the good, obviously, obviously, the good are the tax benefits, right? And the way I like to explain it, there's really four 
four tax benefits, right? One is the capital gains that you obtain from a sale of really any type of investment, which is actually another part of the good. It's not just real estate, which is typically what my clients are used to in the real estate world and 1031 exchanges, but also it applies to stocks and bonds and precious metals and your Ferrari and your, your paintings or whatever. But you have a capital gain. And instead of paying that capital gain, your first benefit is if you roll that into an opportunity zone fund, and hold it for five years. Well, first of all, the first benefit I'm sure is you actually get to defer that tax, right? So instead of paying it today, you get to defer it into the future, which is always good. But if you hold that investment for more than five years, you get that additional benefit of that 10% discount, or as I'm sure you guys would correct me, a 10% step up in basis in that investment. So you get a little bit of a discount on your capital gain that you just had. And if you hold it for a couple more years than the seven years, then you get an additional 5% step up in basis. So a total of a 15% discount. So you get the deferral, which is nice. You get a 10% discount. You get a 5% discount additionally. And the big benefit, obviously, is if you hold that investment for a minimum of 10 years in that new investment within that Opportunity Zone fund, then you get a 100% step up in basis, which means you pay no capital gains tax on that investment that you made today. So to me, obviously, that's the big benefit. Uh, other benefits that I like, like I mentioned before, it's, in some respect, it's better than a 1031 for real estate investors because it's not just property to property. It's not a like-kind exchange. You can exchange stocks and bonds into the funds, which is, which is a nice benefit. It also has very limited government interference, right? Most of these government programs are really heavily regulated. And, and these are, I mean, there is obviously some regulation, but you know, the there's a self-certification on the fund. You just kind of check that box and you guys know a lot more about that than me, but it's a fairly simple process of checking the box. And then you've got a couple of uh, you know annual audits, if you want to say that the government just wants to make sure that your fund is still legitimately acting as an opportunity zone fund. But by and large, there's not that much regulation. Um, the bad, and I'm going to group the bad and the ugly together. In my world, the probably the worst thing, <laughs> the bad on the opportunity zone is just this requirement of having a substantial improvement. Right. So once you purchase a property, and in my world, you're buying an either apartment complex or a home, a single family, what have you, and you must substantially improve that property within 30 months, which means you must invest the same amount of money that the property itself is worth or the, the cost basis that you allocate to the property. So as an example, you buy a property for hundred thousand dollars, seventy-five thousand is, is applicable for the property, twenty-five thousand is to the land, you've got to invest an additional seventy-five thousand dollars into that investment. And you know, for a lot of my clients, that becomes an issue because my apartment investors, for example, are definitely used to improving the properties, but they're usually doing a little bit of value add, and they're obviously investing some money, but they're not investing that much money that that would call, you know really make sense from a number standpoint for this substantial improvement. So that's one of the big the big issues I see. There's obviously a limitation on the deferral, right? And with a 1031 exchange, you can in theory keep deferring that. For eternity, you just keep doing 1031 exchanges, 1031 exchanges. And on this one, you're obviously capped at a maximum of, as we are today, seven and a half years. You can, you can get a cap till December of 2026. So that's another kind of limitation. The other one is you're kind of investing in, <laughs> you're investing in markets that typically people would not invest in. I mean, there's a reason why they came up with these programs. The capital is not flowing into these marketplaces. So you just got to be really careful when you're investing in these markets. The, the deal itself still needs to to stand up on its own. It still needs to make sense. Uh, and it's got to be careful that you know, you're not letting the tax detail wag the dog and make sure the investment makes sense. And the last one, which is a little bit technical, and I try not to get technical, especially when I've got CPAs in the room, but uh, there's also 1231 gain issues. Uh, people who are um, you know, selling and have a 1231 gain, which is usually my clients because they're all real estate investors, 
there's a tolling of the period that they have in order to roll into the fund, but they're actually prohibited at this point from investing until the end of the year. So I've got clients who are ready to go, and then I give them the bad news that they've got to wait till next year to put that money to use. So that's kind of the big, the big summary, uh, kind of the big, the big, really ugly. And I know you guys did an episode on it, so I kind of wanted to kind of skip through that. And obviously, they can go back to the original episode to get more details. Absolutely, that was a great summary. And I just want to add to the ugly or or the bad part, whatever you want to look at it, is that it actually, in order to get that full benefit, that full fifteen percent step up, that fifteen percent essentially reduction in your original deferred capital gain, you need to make that investment by 1231-2019, which is you know a short six months away from us, give or take, at this point in June. So that's just something to keep in mind. And also, the ugly part of it is, too, is regardless of whether or not you sell the investment in 2026, you're going to have to recognize that capital gain that you deferred. So you might have uh, some phantom income coming your way in 2026, so you better have your money saved to be able to pay for that gain. Yeah, cash management is going to be key. Yeah, sorry, Brandon, go ahead. No, no, I, I just can say I also want to add another ugly. I think that something that few maybe CPAs are thinking about or few folks that are really advising clients on this, uh, they're not really thinking about just the general audit timeline for the IRS to come in, audit returns, go through tax court cases. So, I mean, we, we rely, and I'm sure that you do too, we rely on tax court cases often to help us make decisions on what strategies we're recommending. Well, I mean, the IRS on a substantial underreporting of your income, they have six years to go back and audit you. I mean, we could be bumping up to, you know, 2025, 2026 before we even see any of these regulations that are so new and somewhat convoluted still before we even see any more clarity on these. So it's a really interesting opportunity to be investing in opportunity funds. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I, I'll echo that because, you know, from a legal standpoint, you know, obviously, as you guys mentioned, the last round of regs just came out middle of April. Uh, they're technically not final. I mean, we've been told that we can rely on, on all of them except one thing, but we can technically rely on them. But we are expecting, you know, another round. And there's still, even though, at least on my side, on the real estate side, that we got a lot of clarification that's very helpful to the point where now we're comfortable moving forward. You're absolutely right. We don't have all the answers because, you know, it's brand new. And so all the scenarios that could potentially come up haven't come up yet. And as they come up, questions arise. And as I was talking offline before, a lot of, I, I don't know, it's definitely not intentional, but I think a lot of the regs, you ended up doing that proverbial throwing the baby out with the bathwater and, and some people are getting caught, which really they shouldn't get caught. And so we're, we're hoping that the next round of regs, which from my understanding should happen before the end of the year, will get even further clarity. But uh, you're right, that uncertainty is definitely one of the bad things about this um, new law. 100%. That the entire uncertainty thing, I think, is what's making a lot of people hesitate to get these things started and get these things, get the ball rolling. So that's definitely a bad thing. I just want to throw one more thing in there, too, especially for real estate investors. <laughs> um, so Section 1245 is Section 1250 recapture, uh, which is basically tangible personal property and the recapture from depreciating your building does not roll over. You cannot roll it over. So when you sell your building and uh, you want to roll your gains over into an qualified opportunity fund, you can only roll the capital gain portion, which is the 1231 portion. And like, you know, like Mauricio alluded to before, the 1231 portion, you actually have to net them together at the end of the year. So you can't just say sell the building today on, say, June 18th and just roll over the entire capital gain. You have to wait till the end of the year because if you were to sell a building, let's say, in November or six months from now, 
at a loss than you were sell one the one you sold today on on June eighteenth for a gain. You have to net those together before you can even do anything. So that's another ugly part or or bad part. Yeah. One other thing also I'll bring up, I'm not sure it's a good, the bad, the ugly, but it's maybe just a reality. <laughs> One of the things we're noticing on the, again, on the legal side is there's still, there's still a large spread between the bid and the ask. Uh, a lot of the sellers of the, of the properties that are in the opportunity zones are expecting higher prices now because, Hey, this is, this is, there's a tax benefit for you, Mr. Buyer or Mrs. Buyer. And so we expect a higher price. And a lot of the buyers, I think smartly so, are still underwriting these without the tax benefits. And so, especially in the sort of in the middle, I would say the middle part of the country, there's just a lot of disparity between the the asking price and the selling price. And that's contributed, I think, a little bit to the lack of really the lack of transactions that we've had, um, you know, since the new regs have come up. Obviously, it's a new law and people are anxious to do it, but we've seen kind of a, it's not like a huge flurry of transactions. I think that's part of it is there's, there's just a, that it's going to have to take some time for people to realize that we've, we've got to meet somewhere in the middle. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. We've had some of our clients tell us that they're not really interested in the hold periods that are required here in order to gain the tax benefits, but they are interested in investing in the opportunity zones and potentially selling those assets to the opportunity funds. <laughs> right. An interesting take that uh, yeah. I didn't even think about, but yeah, I guess, I guess. So you're not, you're not really, you're, you're seeing kind of across the board, just not a whole bunch of transactions quite yet. Yeah. I haven't seen a ton of transactions. I'm actually working on, uh, on a couple of them right now. And actually one of them is not a syndication. My primary prison obviously is syndication, but I have a client who just wanted to go. He actually, this is something that comes up and maybe we can discuss it. Maybe this is a good segue into some of the new rules, but I literally have a client and this happens a lot where real estate investors have already bought property in an opportunity zone without either not realizing it was an opportunity zone or at the time they bought it, it this was you know five years ago and the opportunity zones didn't exist. And so they, now they want to take advantage of the opportunity zones, but they, they already own it, right? And the challenge has been that you cannot transfer on a legal side, you cannot transfer the property to yourself or one of your, obviously you got to do it in, through an opportunity zone fund, but you cannot transfer the property from your personal name over to the fund because it's a related party. And so you actually can do it, but you've got to retain less than 20% ownership. So that's problematic for, you know, normal investors and syndicators. It's also typically a little problematic. But one of the things that was nice about the new rules that's actually helping us quite a bit is the addition that you can lease the property to your Opportunity Zone fund. And that, even though it's a related party, that's not going to be prohibited and you can can still own 100%. Uh, You don't have to worry about keeping 20%. And that's that's going to be a tool that I think on the legal side, a lot of people are going to be using, especially developers. And in this particular case, my client, we're going to use a lease structure to get around the fact that uh, you know it is a related party and he bought the property before the opportunity zones came into play. So that's kind of an interesting new development that just came out in April or clarification that came out in April. And I'm pretty sure that when you lease the property, it does qualify for either the original use or, or the substantial yep. improvement. It's, it's the original the- use. Yeah, it's considered original use. Yeah. So that's very helpful. One of the other things I've, and I kind of popped in my mind as something, and I think I do have it in my report uh, in terms of an ugly, but one of the things that I, I don't know if people forget or it's just not super clear, but for those, again, on the real estate side, those funds that have multiple properties, it gets a little confusing when people start buying and selling those properties, right? So you can sell a property. So let me give you the rule and tell you where the confusion happens on the legal side. You can sell, if, you, if you're a fund and let's say you have three properties, and for whatever reason, before the 10 years is up, you decide to sell one of those properties, 
Well, the IRS said, hey, you can sell that and then you can buy a new property within a quote unquote reasonable time and you won't blow your opportunity zone status. And so that was one of the you know, uncertainties before the new rules came out. And now we've got some clarification that reasonable time means one, basically generally one, one year or 12 months. You've got 12 months to then reinvest that capital that you retained in, into a new qualified asset, in, in my case, usually a piece of property. And as long as you, you know, that asset is kept in, you know, it's got to be kept in basically short-term notes or cash or what have you. But the confusion happens is that even though the opportunity zone fund remains intact, so if to the extent you've got deferrals that came in, that that remains intact, your 10 years still intact. But when you sell that property, if you did get capital gains from that property, that's going to be a taxable event for you. That part is not excluded on any of these opportunity zone rules which is something that people either oversee or don't think about. But uh, that's something to keep in mind. That's probably a bad thing. So you can argue it's a bad thing, but you know you could also argue it's a good thing because if you're a passive investor, it kind of prevents your sponsor from churning the portfolio too much and, and making money on fees because uh, when that happens, you're going to get hit with a tax hit. You know, no, 100% on that one. And also something to add on there, so just to recap, that's basically if you invest in the opportunity fund and it's a partnership and say the sponsor decides to sell ABC Main Street, even though your deferred gain, the gain that you invested into the fund, will not be recognized at the point of that sale, uh, you still have to pay the capital gains tax on the sale of that asset. Um, I guess just to add on to that too, that after 10 years, you can actually make an election to defer the gain on the sale of the assets sold by the opportunity fund. So you don't have to actually sell your opportunity fund interest to eliminate those gains. However, I think that's the portion that that is the portion of the proposed regulations right now that you cannot rely on. Right. And uh, right. that's causing, you know, a lot of issues for a lot of people who are saying, you know, well, you know, what if I can't sell my entire opportunity fund interest and the fund just starts selling off the assets in 10 years. Right. Um, so it's, that's the ugly part yeah. too right now. And that is um, good. And, and there is limitation to that too. I mean, the gravy train kind of ends, I think it's, it's 2046. I think that's right. That that hundred percent step up in basis kind of ends in twenty forty six. So you get the tax free capital gains, but any capital gains after twenty, I think it's twenty forty six, maybe it's twenty forty seven. The the hundred percent step up basically ends there. So any additional gains after that, you'll you will start paying taxes. Yeah, I think the date is is twenty forty seven. I'm just I'm trying to think of I remember off the top of my head. Yeah, I think it's twenty forty seven. Yeah. But I mean, either way, at this point, I think that buffer when uh, it originally came out in October regulations, I believe it said uh, the, the reason behind that was they want to give people, I think it was in one of the IRS, uh, one of those uh, forums they did. Uh, and the, the reason behind that was because uh, they wanted people to have enough room to sell. Because if you were to close the transaction, say, December 31st, 2026, you know, how far out do you have to go? And they say you give people about a 20 year or so, uh, you know, room to run so you can hold the asset if you want to hold it beyond. The yeah. yeah, cool. Hey, do you mind if I ask you, can I flip the table real quick and ask you guys a question? <laughs> you know, I'm, ho- I'm hoping on the, this 1231 issue is, is such a, a thorn for some of my investors. And, and I feel like there are instances that you sell your property where you know what your gain is. Like if I'm a single family investor and I sold my property today, and I got a capital gain of, I don't know, $100,000 or whatever today. I know exactly what my capital gains is. I'm not in an LLC. I'm not waiting for my K1s at the you know, beginning of next year. I'm not, I don't have multiple properties that I'm buying and selling with my LLC. 
But that's a 12-51 gain, as I understand it, right? And so the way the current rules are, and I understand the, the basis behind the current rules, but the current rules would prohibit me as a real estate investor to reinvest that until next year. And I'm kind of hoping that that's something they'll fix. But do you guys see in any issues with that scenario? I feel like they just threw out the, the baby with the bathwater in that specific scenario. Because obviously, if you're in the fund, I get it. You don't know until you get your K-1s and you have multiple properties. And I get it. You got to net it out. But if I'm just a one, one-off guy, don't I know what my capital gain is the minute I sell it? Yeah, I think there's an election you can make. Well, I know there's an election you can make on the partnership side. So uh, if, you, if you're selling through a pass-through entity, you're going to see a very similar situation to 1231 gain. You can wait to the end of the year and you could start that 180 day clock on 1231 or whatever the end of your tax year is. And I know that with the partnerships, you can make the election to treat the date of the sale the same date as the date the partnership sells the asset. But what I'm not 100% certain on is if you can make that same election. Like you said, for instance, say you're a landlord, you have one property you're selling this year, you know you're not selling another property this year. Right. I would have to double check. I don't know off the top of my head here, um, but I'm pretty sure you can make that election too for that 1231. So yeah, uh, on the 1231 game, or I wouldn't be surprised if they come out within the next round. They've got to come out. Yeah, I'm, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they come out with some clarification on that because I think the original intent is for the LLCs, people who own you know either passive investors or maybe it's a partnership. Maybe the three of us have an LLC and we have multiple properties and that makes sense. But if I'm just a single guy, and I own something in my personal name. I sell that, you know, as, as a thing. Um, there really should be no reason that I can think of that you you can know exactly what your gain is today, and then you know roll that over and into the new investment. So, so you're, you're what you're saying is that it's because the 180 day clock doesn't start ticking until 12:31. It's not just that it doesn't start ticking. You're actually prohibited from investing before the 180 days because the government takes a position that you don't know what your capital gains is until the end of the year because you've got to wait till it gets all netted out. Got it. So even if I wanted to, and some people are kind of saying, oh, I'll take my chances. I pretty, I know kind of know what my thing is. I'll do it. But I don't, and those are kind of risks that I'm not comfortable with. But, uh, you know, if you know what your capital, again, if you're just owning the property by yourself, I know what my gain is, right? I sold it today. I know what my, I mean, I talked to my CPA. I talked to you guys. You tell me what my depreciation recapture is. And you, you can tell me pretty quickly what my net gain is. And if I'm not planning on buying any more property or selling any more property and it's in my personal name, you know, I should be able to roll that over today, but the, the current rules don't allow me. It's not just a tolling, but it's a prohibition until until next year for me to make that investment. Yeah, I have to imagine that there would be some sort of clarification there because exactly what you said, if I sell a property today and I know I can calculate that gain, and hopefully I am calculating that gain if I have a good yeah. CPA. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but I'm, I'm calculating that gain and I know exactly what, where I stand. One, I might not even want to wait until 1231. And two, if I'm prohibited, then and a good deal pops up or, or a good opportunity pops up in an opportunity fund, if I can't take advantage of that, that would be a huge bummer. I would imagine that that, that will be clarified. Uh, I hope so. I, I don't want to say soon because <laughs> <laughs> we've seen how that's been working with, uh, with opportunity funds. But right. um, so switching, switching back to the legal end of things. So how are you structuring these entities uh, that are setting up opportunity funds, that are going in and buying these types of properties or wanting to target these properties. Can you talk about that? Yeah, when it's a straight sale or some straight purchase, it's not that different from what we are seeing now. So again, my clients typically will buy, you know, an apartment building, for example, you know, 100 unit apartment complex. And so if we were doing that in an opportunity zone, nothing would change. We would still create the fund in an LLC, which is typically the structure of choice. Well, you could do it in LP as well, but I typically do it in an LLC. 
and I create that LLC in the state where the property is located. So let's say you're you're buying a piece of property in uh, Detroit, Michigan, because you know that's it's been a pretty hard hard hit place. So you want to go buy something in Detroit, Michigan, in an opportunity zone. We would create a Michigan LLC uh, that has obviously the the limited partners, and then in my case, my the general partners, and we would simply just buy that property. If you had multiple properties or you're planning on buying multiple properties, then we would create um, you know, sub-LLCs to own those individual properties. And those would all be single-member LLCs that are owned by that main Opportunity Zone fund. And everything would just, from a tax perspective, everything would just be disregarded and flow up to the main zone fund. But the main difference, I think, on a structural standpoint is because of the Opportunity Zone funds, a lot of times people, again, already own the property and either they didn't know about it or the rules came in after the fact. And so they want to syndicate a deal they already had, then we're structuring it as a lease, which ordinarily we wouldn't do. And it's easier said than done because from a structural standpoint, that's not a problem. But from a lending standpoint, you know, the banks, all those guys, they tend to be a little bit more hesitant to loan money on ground leases, even though it's kind of a related party. So Practically, it might be a little bit more challenging, but certainly from a legal standpoint, it's been very clear that we can certainly create that opportunity zone fund and then enter into a lease with the client, whereby we, you know, it's a 99 year lease that gets, well, we're probably not going to hold it for more than 99 years, but you can always renew that lease for an unlimited amount of time. So if I was going to go set up like a standard fund and start buying properties in Detroit, what sort of additional complexities or uh, additional layers of complexities am I looking at from the legal side as opposed to like structuring a standard syndicator fund? You know, just uh, the main complexities are just all these timelines that we've got to pay attention to. And, and, and that's why it's so important to have somebody like you guys on the team and just somebody that has, you know, that knowledge of opportunity zones and, and aware of the timelines. And there's also, you know, something to look at if it's a kind of a complex and it makes sense economically. But there are a lot of administrators that are popping up, almost like a sort of those qualified intermediaries in a 1031 that, that'll kind of look over your shoulder. They've got these really high-end, I've seen these software programs that they have, but they kind of keep track of all of the timelines because that's important, obviously, to know when you're like, let's say you're, you have to substantially improve the property. You've got 30 months to do that. You can't suddenly wake up in month 29 and say, oh, crap, I got to go spend X amount of dollars because it's going to take more than a month. And then obviously on the audited side, you know, you're going to get audited twice a year. So you just want to make sure your books and records are, are tight and that you, you can show that, you know, that the assets you have, number one, are in the opportunity zone and to the extent you haven't deployed them, uh, that they're in, you know, qualified assets like cash or short-term, you know, debt instruments. I think they've got to be 18 months or, or less. So there's, there's a lot of little things like that. And, and that's why, like I say, you just have to really be careful and be working with not only your, your, your legal team, your tax team. And then potentially maybe one of these third-party administrators that uh, kind of administer the fund for you to make sure you don't blow any of these important deadlines. How are operating agreements different with opportunity funds than standard funds or syndicates, or are they different? No, they are definitely different because you do have to put in all the provisions that apply to the opportunity zone. And again, there's a lot of them. And so it'll depend on the type of investment. Again, I, I focus on the real estate side, so my, my additions are probably a little bit less than if you were buying property, but you've obviously got to put in there you know, any limitations that you have. So again, you can only buy property in the state. That, that's typically something you would put in the operating agreement. The, the purpose of this LLC is to purchase property in this zone. It's, you know, you cannot, from a legal standpoint, the operating agreement will not allow you to buy a property outside the zone. Uh, you can buy it in different zones as long as they're your opportunity zone. They don't have to all be in the same opportunity zone. You can spread it out into different opportunity zones. But all those limitations and this, you know, a substantial improvement in the 30 months, all that language should be in the operating agreement. 
And like I said, the real estate one's a little bit simpler, but certainly on the business, those rules are, in my opinion, 10 times more complicated than the property ones. So, you know, I like to think of me myself as a smart person. I just ignored them all. <laughs> oh, got it. Got it. One thing to add in here and to what you're saying, I think just to clarify, uh, those audits you're, you're talking about, those audits you're referring to are the 90% tests um, that have to be met on a six-month point throughout your tax year. And then again, on uh, the 1231 at the end of the year that say that 90% of your assets are within the opportunity zone, which for real estate is uh, relatively easy to do because there isn't. And also actually now that I'm thinking about too, to add on to that, that there's a provision and I don't think there, or in the proposed regulations, I don't think they define for this part what substantially all means, but if substantially all of your properties in an opportunity zone and a little bit is outside of the opportunity zone, then you can qualify the whole property as being in the opportunity zone. Again, they don't define clearly what that 70% or 90%. Um, I'm sure that'll come out too in the regulations. But just, just shifting gears a little bit again, what is the best tax advice that you ever received or your favorite tax strategy that you may be using uh, in your life? Uh, I think there's two of them that come to mind. One is <laughs> buy real estate. <laughs> oh, yeah. Probably the number one, uh, sort of the best tax shelter that you can come up with. Uh, and the other one, which in all honesty, I'm not a huge expert on because I you know, just found this out, but uh, conservation easements uh, was another huge thing that somebody has started to uh, sort of educate me on. And I'm, I'm kind of starting to go down that road of, of learning about it. But uh, as I understand it, that's a huge tax Again, I don't want to call it shelter. It almost seems like it's something nefarious or something. But um, that's something I'm definitely looking into and, and something I'll probably be using for this tax year because it's just an amazing from what, again, what I understand, a, a pretty incredible tax break where you can four, five, six X your your deductions from, from the investment. Those are probably the two that pop into my mind. Yeah, those are great. We, we have a really good podcast episode on land conservation easements. I will say... To, uh, to you and all of our listeners, be very careful with the conservation easements right now. They are under uh, scrutiny, and um, you just, just want to make good choices whenever you're, you're going that route. Um, this question might be a little bit self-serving, but <laughs> for us, <laughs> um, you know, syndicates, these funds, these general partners, they go and they get the operating agreement. They come to you. They get the operating agreement built out. They get the entity structuring built out. At what point? Do you tell them you need to go run this by your CPA? Well, the running the operating agreement by the CPA obviously doesn't happen until I'm, I'm done drafting it, which I actually do pretty fast. But I'm always telling clients to have a really good CPA that specializes in real estate and is familiar with syndications right off the bat. Like that's just critical. So, a couple of things that I might practice. Number one, I've had my operating agreement vetted by a firm that I, a tax firm that I, well, it's my own tax firm, so my, I, that I know and respect. I don't change my language on that unless the CPA from the client does so, because I, it's just, I, I'm just not, you know, proficient in that. And also, anytime somebody wants to do something, for lack of a better word, wacky, I always want to have the CPA sign off on it. So, for example, if somebody wanted to come to me and say, "Look, I want," and this is actually one of the topics that look controversial, hey, uh, I want to reallocate depreciation. For example, like, let's say it's a fifty-fifty deal. I, I want to give 80% to one side and 20% to the other side. I'm like, I can do I, that's easy from a from a structural standpoint, but make sure I get the sign off from the CPA. And what's really been a little bit controversial, and we don't have to get into it, but uh, is just you know doing that for IRAs. So some people want to you know create separate classes. IRA folks typically don't have that much tax uh, you know benefits of depreciation, although there is you know there is some EBITDA 
issues, but a lot of times they want to give zero depreciation to the IRA investors and all the depreciation to the passives. And, you know, not, <laughs> I'm going to say this anyway. I, I always joke, and this is true for lawyers too, but I always, I always joke that you ask, uh, you know, you ask three CPAs the same question, you get five different answers. Yeah. And, it, and I know it's the same for lawyers. But uh, so some people say that's fine. Some people say it doesn't it's not fine. But it's so critical. And now even you know even so with the five hundred six C's, which you know not to get I mean that's not a syndication show. But when when we have uh, when we have uh, offerings that we advertise, we actually have an obligation now to take reasonable steps to verify that our investors are accredited. And one of the ways we do that is through the CPA verification letter. So scarily enough, there if that's even a word, some people either. T- some people don't have CPAs, which is really scary when they're doing this stuff. So it's critical it's to have the CPA. It's just a, it's just a, the CPA is an integral part of your team, and um, they should be involved right at the beginning, and, and certainly to review the operating agreement. If nothing else, the section on on tax, which is you know probably two or three pages uh, on the operating agreement, another two or three pages on the disclosure documents. Yeah, I mean, obviously, all of our listeners can take this with a grain of salt because again, it is self serving. But your CPA should be involved before that operating agreement is signed. So just like you were saying, you build it out, you draft it up, you send it to the CPA for review. And we work with a lot of syndicates and a lot of funds and the syndicates that work with attorneys that don't have a lot of experience or don't do what you've done, where you take that operating agreement to the firm, to the CPA firm, you think, what is this going to look like from a tax standpoint? I mean, you can shift capital, you can have taxable events right when you sign that operating agreement, right when you invest those funds, and you can have those taxable events unknowingly if you create capital shifts. So just make sure that you do get that CPA to sign off on those distribution. It's typically the waterfall, right? It's, it's how do the distributions get made? Yeah. And not to be self-serving, but it actually ends up saving you money because what happens if, if you hand your CPA, because I've had this issue, not with my operating agreements, of course, but with others, but uh, you, you have CPAs that, that get these operating agreements that either don't make sense or aren't properly drafted. And so they're now spending extra time either researching it or fixing it or doing whatever. So you end up spending more money versus just sending it to them on the front end, spending a couple hundred bucks or whatever it is to, to, to review it on the front end. You just, you're saving money in the long term as opposed to waiting till you know April 13th or something to, to figure it all out. You know, no, 100%. I mean, I just, I just got off the phone with a client today when I was just telling him, look, you know, it, it's always better to get things done right the first time, the first round through. Because it, it, if you start doing stuff and you don't start asking for the advice up front, you end up with a knot, like picture your shoes and uh, you just have this huge knot because you didn't tie your shoes the right way the first time. And then you have to untangle this huge knot and it costs more money, takes more time from you, more hassle, more headaches, just get everything done right the first time. And I think it's uh, one of Stephen Covey's um, things, uh, always begin with the end in mind. So, I mean, it's, it's one of those habits, but yeah. Just out of curiosity, when you're working on the syndication side of the business, because like Brendan said, we do have some syndication clients, how do you see them handling accounting? Are they, do they do it in-house? Are they outsourcing it? Or how, how do you normally see that being done? Uh, I would say most of them outsource it. They have a bookkeeper, but I, I have seen clients try to do that on their own. And it's, that's a scary thing. And, and, you know, and I've got to be careful because I've got I've to kind of sometimes stay in my lane. But when you're dealing with investor monies, you know, first of all, you shouldn't be doing that yourself anyway, just from a time perspective. But it's just, you're, once you're handling other people's money, you do have a fiduciary responsibility to them. 
And so there's really no reason that you shouldn't be outsourcing that to either your CPA or a bookkeeping service or what have you. If nothing else, the, the cost of that's coming out of the project anyway. That's an expected and ordinary and normal cost that would, you know, any passive investor would be expecting to see. So there's really no reason why it shouldn't be outsourced. But I'd say 90% of my clients do outsource it, but there are still some that want to do it, you know, in-house and they want to save the five bucks or whatever to do it themselves. And I don't think they file their tax returns on their own, but I mean, they do on the personal side sometimes, which, which is also, you know, terrifying, but certainly when it comes to the, to the syndications, they better have a CPA doing all that stuff. It's, plus it's complicated with the K-1s and everything. So, you know, hundred percent, you know, actually something that just crossed my mind as you were talking there was, you know, and not only do you not want to be doing it yourself because of the time aspect of it, and it is a normal cost in the deal that if you have to take the cost of the accounting out of the deal to make the deal make sense, if you're syndicating a deal, probably is not a good deal to begin with. Absolutely. And that brings me back to episode 29 when we did the opportunity fund with John. And, and he said that, you know, you have to look at these deals. If you're going to be investing in the opportunity zone, you'll be using an opportunity fund. Does the deal make sense without the tax benefits? And if the answer to that question is yes, then chances are it's a good deal. And if it's not, then you may want to uh, rethink about doing the deal because the the tax benefits really the icing on the cake almost. And really, at the end of the day, the economics of the deal is really what matters, the fundamentals. You know, anyway, with with that all said, um, you know, from a tax, uh, from a tech perspective, uh, what's your favorite mobile app or piece of technology that you're currently using in your business? I started using this particular, uh, it's an app and also a thing that you guys are probably very familiar with it. And everyone's been trying to get me to use it for years. And I've always been like, eh, it's not a big deal, but it's Evernote. So I've just started using Evernote and I just really started realizing the potential that it has. I mean, like I said before, like, ah, it's just like notes, like on my iPhone or whatever. It's nothing special, but I've really been into it the last two or three months and I'm just scratching the surface. But to me, that's been like, really, I don't say life-changing, but it certainly has been, uh, from an organizational standpoint, really awesome for me. And I'm just looking forward to unlocking all the potential that has. But I'm sure I'm late to the party. A lot of people use Evernote and love it. And, but I'm just new to the party on that one. No, Evernote's great. I know Brandon used Evernote. I've been using Evernote uh, without even like really knowing that it was that 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 big of a thing for, for a few yeah. years now. Um, so we know you, you help people set up the operating agreements and the structures for opportunity zones as well as syndications. What would be the best way for our listeners to get in contact with you? Yeah, uh, you can always visit my website. I'm at premierlawgroup.net, premierlawgroup.net. I've got some resources there. You want to reach out to me, you can always find me at team, T-E-A-M, at premierlawgroup.net. And if you want a copy of my report on Opportunity Zones, the Anti-Lawyer's Guide to Opportunity Zones, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, you can just shoot an email to oz at premierlawgroup.net, and I'll get you a copy of that report, which isn't as good as yours, but it's something. I'm sure it's, sure it's great. I think I, I, you sent that to me and it was a great report. Yeah. Um, yeah. So definitely check that out there if you're interested um, in Opportunity Zones and stuff. Um, so we want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show today. Before we go, is there any final words of wisdom, uh, any final pieces of advice you have for our listeners today? Just on the Opportunity Zones, like I said, just kind of maybe summarize it. Just be careful. A lot of people think that because I'm talking about Opportunity Zones and I have the report and all that stuff that I'm in favor of it. And I'm not. I'm not in favor or against it. You just got to understand what it is. Uh, it's a tool. For some of you, it's going to be great. For others, it's not going to work. And really, I echo what your last comment was. The deal, whether it's real estate or business, needs to make sense without the tax benefit. And uh, as long as that happens, you should be fine. Awesome. Awesome. So thanks again for coming to the show today. Uh, look forward to releasing it. Thank you. Even at halfway through the year, it's not too late to start tax planning for 2019 and the years ahead. 
Our Tax Strategy Foundation Engagement is a multiple call series that walks you through the tax strategies you'll need to minimize your tax bills. At the end of the series, we'll give you a tax strategy blueprint that summarizes each strategy and what actions you'll need to take to implement them. And if you need assistance throughout the year, our team is there to help you every step of the way. There's no need to pay more taxes than necessary. Head over to therealestatecpa.com and fill out the form on the Become a Client page to get started today. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.